Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas that they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Ed Broadbent, the former longtime federal member of parliament, leader of the New Democratic Party, and an ongoing and passionate voice for social democracy. As part of these efforts, he's recently co-authored a new book entitled Seeking Social Democracy, Seven Decades in the Fight for Equality, which has been described as a, quote, part memoir, part history, part political manifesto. I'm grateful to speak with him about the formation of his worldview, his career in politics, and broader intellectual and political trends within the world of Canadian social democracy. I should say that if our conversation is anything like the book, it'll be a fascinating insight into the history and ideas of Canada's social democratic movement. Ed, thanks for joining us at Hub Dialogues, and congratulations on the book. I'm delighted to be with you and look forward to our discussion. Let's start with the book's interesting structure. It consists of 10 chapters on topics such as nationalism, globalization, and identity that are preceded by a short essay by you, which is then followed by an exchange between you and your co-authors. Talk about the decision to write the book this way. Why did you eschew a more conventional biography? What were you hoping to achieve by structuring it as something of a dialogue? I've, like many people, I've read conventional uh, autobiographies, especially of politicians. And inevitably, they get into the sort of game of defending themselves from past actions and criticizing their opponents. And it's pretty inescapable to, to do that with the conventional format of when you're just talking about your life of politics. So I wanted something different if I ever did anything. And particularly, I wanted something that would deal with ideas. So along came... Uh, Timothy Garton Ash and uh, uh, Tony Jutt. And uh, they were two, I won't take a lot of time, one a Princeton historian, another a distinguished English historian. And they set the format of question and answer. And uh, getting uh, Mr. Judd, in this case, to answer questions put to him forcefully, intellectually, by an, an interlocutor. So I decided I would like that format and came along with uh, three acquaintances now in the book, very important people, um, different generations, different scholarly backgrounds. And I thought this would be more rewarding for an audience if they would ask questions and I would do my best to answer them. So it would it, it wouldn't repeat the same thing over and over, same format. It would be a a question and answer session with some serious people discussing serious issues. 
the early chapters outline your intellectual trajectory, including reckoning with the inherent problems with the communist model. Talk a bit about that, Ed. How did you come to distinguish your personal commitments to social democracy from the state socialism that was present in parts of the world, including in particular your rejection of what you call scientism? Yeah, well, during those formative years when I was an undergraduate in the late 50s in, in Toronto and early 60s, the model of socialism discussed in Eastern Europe um, by those who were defending the system, whether they were in Eastern Europe or not, uh, had no appeal to me. It had a very authoritarian structure. And information had got out about the gulags. Uh, uh, so there was a combination of quite inefficient economy with the deplorable record of uh, human rights. And the, the state model lent itself to it. It, it. If the state controls everything, then those people who uh, are, are consciously, unconsciously in it for power-seeking reasons have a big state uh, to do their will. And I didn't want that under any circumstance. It had nothing to do with the, the idea of socialism that I got, say, from writers like Albert Camus or Bertrand Russell, people who believe profoundly in human liberty. Um, so my my pursuit of social democracy was quite different from the pursuit of any kind of state socialism. Inequality is a major theme that animates your politics and runs throughout the book. What's the source of your concern? Is it a normative one about the size of the income and wealth gap in society in and of itself? Is it about the political consequences of inequality? Or is it the possible effects that inequality can have on social mobility? Make the case for why we ought to concern ourselves with inequality rather than poverty or other socioeconomic challenges. Yeah, it's a, it's the effects of inequality on all three of the issues that you raise. Take the the big gap issue. It, it is a source in countries as divorced as diverse as the U.S. and Sweden and many many others. That the the gap felt by those at the bottom. Uh, seeing those at the top getting richer and richer while they are either stagnant or getting worse. This this is, has a corrosive effect on the society as a whole. And uh, those at the bottom, particularly in, even in advanced societies, we've seen that now, are drawn into extreme politics. It's a reaction to their, their own disparities in life they see too readily an answer in extremist politics of the kind uh, that Trump, for example, has offered in the country to the Southwest. So overcoming inequality as a, as a major concern ought to be both for the effects of those at, 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 the, at the bottom, most seriously affected in society, but also for society as a whole to avoid this kind of an antipathy, this kind of conflict stirring. You want, you want to narrow the gaps between incomes. And a great study by Pickett called The Spirit Level, both the authors of oh, Wilkinson and Pickett, 
in the book called The Spirit Level, an empirical study showed the narrower you have in gaps between incomes, the better your outcomes and everything. There's less drinking problem, for example. There, there are lower crime rates. There, there are, on the other hand, higher participation rates in society. So dealing with inequality has a good social effect overall. And as a social democrat, that's something that's sort of driven me all my life. You write in at different points in the book about the risk of corporate power and the notion of what you call industrial democracy. There are renewed concerns these days about corporate power, including even among some on the right, based on cases like Amazon delisting certain books or Facebook and Twitter blocking certain accounts. Do you believe that corporations have become more powerful in the internet age? And is there a potential in your mind for something of a left-right consensus in favor of constraining corporate power, including even possibly breaking some of these big companies up? I'm hesitating on that because I, I'm skeptical usually about left-right collaboration, but I think this may well be a, an example of you know a, a intellectually committed neoliberal person can be very critical of corporate power at the same time. Can want you know good competition acts in, in society to break up the overwinning power of large corporations. Um, and someone on, on the political left could want the same thing. And so particularly in this age when we're, we're concerned about security of private information, there could well be a collaborative effort by left-wing and right-wing people thoughtfully engaged on this issue to work together. One of your criticisms of the post-Keynesian consensus, uh, what is often referred to as neoliberalism, is the trend towards what you call a, quote, market society. What do you mean by that? And what are the downsides of a market society in your mind? Yeah, well, I, I make a distinction between a market-based economy and a market-determined society. A market-based economy, by and large, is what I favor, but not unlimited, of course. So that uh, although the delivery of most goods and services, as I would see them, ought to be based on market principles, both for economic efficiency and for political uh, sovereignty reasons. And so well, uh, this is absolutely desirable from a, a functioning economy point of view. I don't want the society as a whole to be shaped by market principles. There are all kinds of things in our lives that ought not to be. Um, they they include, of course, traditional social democratic objectives of getting pensions or now housing out of, out of the market and guaranteed as rights of citizenship. And the more we have of this, the more we can take out of the market in terms of personal security, the less we'll be driven by market, market considerations. So it can make a big difference in our lives. You know, if, if um, a family has a guaranteed pensions, if they have their Medicare costs there, if they have their uh, pharmacare, if they have uh, dental, if they have all these basic essentials of life provided through uh, progressive tax system, then they don't have to make 
great demands on the economy in terms of income even that it can reduce that and they don't have to therefore market themselves so much as they would otherwise so I want very much to have a combination of a market-based economy that counts for most goods and services but I also want out of that many aspects of life that are decommodified so to speak and that people have as rights and if you have that mix market economy but not market shaped society i think we can we can achieve what i would call the good society the social democratic movement that you came up with particularly in the 1960s and 1970s was quite radical by which i mean it envisioned a quite different model of economic and social organization than the prevailing one Yet you say in the book that you were influenced by Michael Oakeshott's calls for prudence and incrementalism. How do you reconcile these tensions throughout your career as an activist and a politician? Actually, I, it came rather naturally to me. The Oakeshott principles that I learned as a student of his and at LSE gave an intellectual framework to what I was actually doing as a politician. And that is that if you're going to make big changes over time, you want to first meet people where they are, show respect for those who differ with you fundamentally. And if if you show respect by taking the effects that what you're doing into account on their impact, and incidental consequences of what you're doing may not always be good. And therefore, they have to be reassured that you have their interests at heart and that you will be taking measures to deal with negative consequences. So for me, there's no contradiction between this incrementalism and social democracy. In fact, for social democracy to be effective, it has to be uh, the kind of policy-driven agenda that shows respect to conservatives and others who may differ with it. One of the most fascinating lines in the book is the following. You write, quote, I have an Orwellian skepticism about the state being viewed as any kind of panacea, unquote. I have to ask, what do you mean? Are, are you saying, Ed, that there's a risk of government concentration too? And if so, how does one think about balancing the inherent risks of too much business and governmental power? I, I am saying that an insensitive state is a distinct possibility at times. And so that my colleagues in the social democratic movement, when they get power, they may respond in a way that in, in practice is no different from their more conservative political enemies in civil society. And so the very presence of state structure that has an impact in everybody's lives has a, the distinct possibility of going away and, and and using power for its own sake in a way unintended or unplanned by the social democratic objectives. So I think there always has to be a, a skepticism about the use of power precisely by social democratic politicians, and they should expect to have built-in criticisms of their own propensities to, to misuse power, perhaps. 
The book talks about the old tax fights in the 1960s and 1970s, including David Lewis's famous criticism of the so-called corporate welfare bums. I want to ask about what I perceive to be an ongoing tension within progressivism about taxes. One gets a sense that there's a hesitation to talk about the need for higher levels of overall taxation to cover the cost of a larger and more active state. I think, for instance, of Tom Mulcair's comments in the 2015 federal election that personal income tax rates in excess of 50% amounted to confiscation. How can progressives build a broad-based case for a larger and better funded government? Well, they have to show that what they want to use the money for is beneficial for everybody, by the way, uh, not just for the poor, but for the average person. So you want, you want to build up solid support across class lines, if I can put it that way, for, for an agenda. So that when you're dealing with housing, for example, you don't just bring in programs that are needed and they are badly needed by the by the poor but you also have uh, on the agenda housing initiatives that will appeal to middle income people that's because for its own sake and also because political support is necessary and you won't get that just by doing something for the poor for example and and so it's important for ordinary people who are not poor to see that they're getting some kind of benefit of these programs. And if the, if that is done, then I think the case can be made for increased taxation, that they, they will see they get the benefit. If, if for, you know, for example, when the Canada, Canada pension was brought in in the, in the 60s, uh, very soon after it was brought in, it was seen to be a very good innovation by the state. And there is strong support for it. So saying to people, for example, you're, ma you're making a contribution now, pay for your pension down the road, was persuasive. And I, th I think that approach has to be taken. Uh, I always to build cross-class support uh, for what you're doing in society. The chapter on how your social democratic worldview came to account for a broader set of rights beyond class-based materialism is, in my view, the most fascinating in the book. I want to ask you to elaborate on a specific passage. You write, quote, marriage equality, access to abortion, and many other important rights are vociferously defended by many neoliberals. Neoliberalism can incorporate a lot of rights so as long as the primacy of the market mechanism isn't threatened. I find this to be a wholly inadequate response to today's conditions. By this, I don't mean to downplay the importance of identity politics. The battles today over trans rights or barriers to abortion access, for example, matter immensely for freedom and equality. But it remains my firm belief that substantive equality still requires a fundamental change in the distribution of power and wealth in society along class lines. The task of social democracy must be to fiercely battle economic inequality and corporate power, but also go beyond that, unquote. Let me ask you two questions. First, how does a social democrat think about these identity issues differently than a neoliberal? And second, is there ever any conflict or tension between a class-based or identity-based politics on the left? Yeah, really good question. So they, I would say that the difference between the social democrat and the neoliberal on, on these issues 
would depend on the individual personalities, maybe. The, the, the neoliberal, as I say there, can be very progressive on gender issues, for example, but reactionary when it comes to class-based politics, i.e. The, the tax system, for example, not favoring any more increase on high-income people. So he, he or she can be a quite consistent neoliberal. In fact, I would argue to be a neoliberal means that you'll you can make progress on these identity politics issues, for, for example, but you can only, only go so far because of your commitment to class-based inequality. That is to say, your commitment to low taxes overall in society, leaving most of the market. So when identity politics conflicts with that, they'll abandon the identity priorities and, and take the market. Sign up for The Hub's free weekly newsletter and receive our best analysis and insights on the big issues and ideas transforming our world. Each Saturday morning, we will send you a compilation of our most interesting and thought-provoking analysis and commentary, along with original news reporting on the people and events driving the public conversation. You can grab the Hub's complimentary weekly newsletter right now by becoming a free Hub member. Do that at www.thehub.ca. Again, www.thehub.ca. Grab your free email newsletter and membership. Act now. You just outlined how neoliberals think about possible conflicts or tensions between identity-based issues and class-based ones. Let me put it to you as a social democrat, are there instances when identity and class-based issues may conflict or, or, or be in tension? Well, there, there can be, and I've seen it at work in, in priorities. For example, someone who is very concerned about gender inequality may have a priority in terms of a, a social democratic government dealing with that issue directly, as opposed to focusing on tax policy, say, in the redistributive way of, the, of a traditional social democrat. So it would be a priority question of your time. You spend time on uh, identity issues at times when they could conflict with the time you want to spend on re removing class problems. That's a possible, a real contradiction that has, has come up from time to time. Well, in fact, I, I, I would say something like that was in the Obama administration, where Mr. Obama ended up spending much more attention on identity issues than he did on class-based politics. And those who are favoring class-based politics were quite, quite critical. So, you know, being a social democrat doesn't mean la-di-da, you, you avoid all the conflicts. In fact, the deeper you go into social democracy, the more likely you're, you're going to find conflicts along the way. And they just have to be resolved or worked out by showing respect again. Respect is, is key. 
And if you don't deal with them, the, that is the, the conflict of priorities in a way that recognizes the decency and humanity of all the people involved, you can be in, in serious trouble in terms of your political agenda. You grew up in working class Oshawa and were the first in your family to attend university. In a sense, you personified the type of people that the social democratic movement in the mid 20th century was rooted in. You even write in the book that, quote, I've always reacted strongly in my social democratic core to class issues, unquote. There has been in recent years, however, a political trend in Canada and elsewhere broadly described as a, quote, political realignment, whereby we're seeing a shift in the support on the left and the right based primarily on educational attainment. The net effect of this trend is that the left is becoming increasingly representative of knowledge workers with post-secondary credentials, and the working class, particularly those in the goods-producing parts of the economy, have moved to the right. What do you think is behind these trends? Well, that, what I think is behind it is that, particularly in the U.S., the Democratic Party, which had for decades since Roosevelt, been the instrument of working class men and women to improve their condition and the democratic party paid attention to them during the clinton years it began to move in the direction you're talking about putting emphasis on their political concern about the educated elites uh, on both coasts in the u.s harvard and the east coast and stanford and on, on the west coast and they they not only appeared to working class people, but were focusing on getting the support of these new elites that were coming into being highly educated people. That is to say, I repeat, the Democrats went after these new elites and they abandoned the working class. Uh, they really did. Uh, and um, Trump came along and offered rhetorically at least support to that precise group that felt abandoned by the Democratic Party. And the fact that they had been abandoned left them open to the kind of appeal that Trump was making. It was quite irrational, not delivered when he was elected, but rhetorically Trump offered a very, from their point of view, a, a dramatic and effective solution to their problems, their problems, I repeat that they had been abandoned by the Democratic Party and that went after these new educated elites. And by the way, the same thing happened with the Labour Party in England. It went after the young, sophisticated people, often from working class themselves, who got into Oxford and Cambridge and went on. And so they paid a lot of attention to these, these people. In the meantime, the working class and particularly in Northern England, were abandoned. And along came the, the conservatives in, in England and scooped up areas that for 100 years it had been for the Labour Party, sw swung over to the Conservative Party, precisely because the Labour Party was seen as abandoning them. So it's very important for a Social Democratic Party to pay attention to what they're supposed to be all about which is to build a society that's just for the mainstream. And it seemed to be just and fair by lower income people particularly. 
I noticed that Luke Savage's introduction to the book cites C.S. Lewis. For a long time, social democracy found inspiration and support from the world of faith. One gets a sense, however, that there's been a bit of a fissure between religiously observant Canadians and the political left. There are, of course, exceptions, but generally speaking, the trend towards secularization seems more pronounced in progressive circles. What do you think is behind that, Ed, and what are the consequences in your mind? I think that secularization uh, has been more pronounced on the left. I'm a good example of that myself, coming out of an Anglican family originally, but abandoning rather unconsciously any commitment to religion during my university days. But let me just offer some counterfactuals. A very distinguished colleague, Bill Blakey, mine, who died recently, was was an active member of his faith in the United Church and uh, very often, indeed, made his case for social democracy based on his religious convictions. So while a general trend has been towards more conservative religious participation by people who of faith who engage in politics, there have been some notable ones in recent years, exception to that. And of course, in the earliest days, J.S. Woodsworth and Tommy Douglas were peoples of the faith. And so there's, there's been a a mixed pattern, I can put it that way, of involvement by people of the faith in the movement. What do you think explains the relative success in recent years of provincial New Democratic parties compared to the federal party? Why has the NDP governed in several provinces, but not always translated that level of popular support at the national level? I haven't a clue. (laughs) Uh, if i had an answer to that question i would be prime minister or would (laughs) it's a a very very challenging issue as we speak uh we're we're recording we're on the eve of a manitoba election Uh, anyway what you say is true if you look at western canada bc ndp government alberta very powerful elected official opposition of the NDP, Saskatchewan, not so much so. But then right away in Manitoba, it looks like it's going to be a very good chance anyway, uh, an NDP government or or very strong opposition. Ontario, the official opposition. Again, I'm just repeating what you're saying, that at at the provincial level, there's a very strong presence of the NDP. Somewhat simplified answer, I would say, watch the Liberal Party. The Liberal Party watches the NDP and nationally has been quite successful in co-opting agenda items and putting them up in the political domain. This has been good for the Liberal Party, but often not so good politically anyway for the NDP. I think that has played a role. But other aspects of that question, I I just don't have an answer to. And if I had an answer, as I say, you would be discussing this with me as a former prime minister. May I ask a follow-up question, sir? Based on those political trends, to what extent should the federal New Democratic Party see itself 
as a government in waiting versus a vehicle for influencing the center of gravity of federal politics. That is to say, is its success determined less by its performance at the ballot box and more on its influence on liberal and and to a certain extent, conservative governments? Well, I don't think it can have an impact on those parties uh, if they weren't afraid that, that we'd win in the ballot box. You know, Tommy Douglas uh, didn't go into uh, the CCF with the view of being a, a voice of conscience in, in the opposition. He went in there to form a government for the people of Saskatchewan. And I've, I believe that all my life. Uh, as leader of the NDP, I didn't see my role as simply providing uh, persuasive arguments for different kinds of policy, but ultimately laying a foundation for forming an NDP government. They aren't exclusive uh, objectives, of course, um, but as sure as we're talking in this interview, any leader of the NDP decided he or she wanted to be simply the voice of conscience, he or she wouldn't be around long because the other parties politically would outsmart them and win. You've got to challenge them politically. They have to feel a threat politically uh, before they respond. Pierre Trudeau told me that in a personal conversation that he said he liked having the NDP around because it provided an argument for him that was true that if his own party didn't move to the left, they'd lose party and lose power. So the presence of the NDP for progressive politics as an electoral, electoral entity of considerable power or potential power it is, is essential, I think, to maintain a progressive government overall. In fact, I, I make the case that if you look at our, there are elements of right-wing populism going on in this country now. That's true. But overall, our government is more progressive than in the country to the south of us, including all the parties. And, and I think that's one of the reasons we don't have an extremist movement of the extent that exists to the south of us. The party system here has, has remained, on the whole, more progressive than that to the socialists. Let me put a penultimate question to you. As you worked on the book and thought about your intellectual formation and evolution and your role as a political figure, in hindsight, what's the most significant change in your political ideas over your career? Oh, I think a trajectory that's pretty common for many people on the left. You start out making very high demands of yourself and of society. At the age of 30, you, you, you want to change the world and think, think it can be done by the age of 31. <laughs> and I, I learned that that wasn't true. And one of the reasons it wasn't true is that um, people are, are reluctant to change in, in basic ways. And I think the big thing I learned over time is to accept with grace 
that reluctance that I didn't know all the answers. And those, those people I wanted to represent knew some things I didn't know. And I, I and my political agenda should show some respect for them. And if that meant moderating over time, not abandoning the agenda, but moderating over time the implementation of that agenda, so be it. In fact, I, I came to believe rightly or wrongly that it's only by being reasonable, as Tommy Douglas showed over time, he didn't introduce universal Medicare to well into his government's experience. He built up uh, confidence in the electorate over time by taking one step at a time in, in his march towards social democracy. And I guess that's what I learned myself is you know, one step at a time is better than no steps at all. And uh, that would be the most significant change, I think, in, in my political thinking. Final question. Is there reason, in your judgment, for optimism that social democratic ideas and values are finding new residence in the current age? Yes, there is. I mean, I look at the country to the south of us that were surveyed down last year um, amongst those under 30. It showed it's over 50%, I think, accepted socialism as a desirable goal. So there, there's change going on. Uh, it's not all bad right-wing stuff, uh, <laughs> put it that bluntly. But some of it is quite progressive. And if we look at our own country, we, and we've just discussed the role of the NDP at the provincial level. And in Toronto, you know, our largest city just elected an NDP mayor. There, there are a lot of values of Canadians that mesh with social democracy. And I'd like to think that it's been the history of the CCF and the NDP which played a role in, in some role in shaping that aspect of Canadian character. So there are grounds for believing that, that success can be a, achieved ahead, even for the federal party, I would add. <laughs> well, that's a, a brilliant way to end the conversation. The book is Seeking Social Democracy, Seven Decades in the Fight for Equality. Ed Broadbent, I want to thank you so much for joining us at Hub Dialogues. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family and subscribe wherever you get your audio online. We also appreciate your ratings and reviews. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.